0: Welcome to the Money Answer Show with host Jordan Goodman. Whether you are starting out, deep into your retirement, or somewhere in between, the Money Answer Show has the know-how to help you. Now here's your host, Jordan Goodman.
1: Welcome to the Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is John Pollack. He's the CEO of Financial Gravity Holdings. His website, financialgravity.com, based in the Dallas, Texas area. Welcome to the show, John. Hey, thanks for having me. Let's just start with a little bit of your background uh, in helping people, uh, both individuals and businesses, save money on their taxes. But give us a little bit of your background.
2: So basically, I started out actually in the wealth management business. Specifically, I started selling insurance, specifically annuities. And that led to wealth management because one of my clients wanted more from me than just insurance. And that led to wealth management. And then I had a great deal of success in that and was paying a ton of taxes. Didn't like it. I kept hearing rich people don't pay their fair share. And so I wanted to solve for the fact that I was paying well beyond my fair share. And that's kind of how we got to the financial gravity in the state that it currently is.
1: So describe what financial gravity is and some of the programs that you offer and what people can find at the financialgravity.com website.
2: So, financial gravity is, is a corporate website. So, it's going to give you a little bit of everything on what we do. We are a nationwide company. And our tagline is lower tax, higher profit, greater wealth. And it's that kind of is our, our path. We start with taxes because if you get the taxes wrong, nothing else really matters. Uh, however, if you get the taxes right, everything else tends to fall into place. Most people's biggest expenses in their portfolios, in their businesses, and in their personal lives is taxes. So we try to solve for that first. Once we solve for that, that leads to greater profit individually as well as in people's businesses and the assumption is is that if we lower your taxes and your profit goes up that your wealth will go up with it so that's kind of the the model we've the path we're leading people down is greater wealth is the end game you know we all are working to retire someday and we want to retire well not retire destitute
1: and so, how do you deal with people online or mostly in person? If there's somebody who's not in Texas, how do you uh, deal with clients all over the country?
2: The answer is yes.
1: <laughs> okay.
2: Yes. We, yeah, so we do online and in person. Right now, we have 20 offices nationwide. Uh, we actually are actively re- recruiting offices. We are looking primarily for registered investment advisor, financial services type firms, uh, because we want we don't want the conflict that comes in the broker dealer model. Uh, there are some good broker-dealers out there, but most of them I would I would personally steer away from. But our model is designed to keep the cost down, lower taxes, and so we're looking for financial advisors that do that. But we have advisors all over the country, and in the, the spots that we don't have advisors, we work over the phone. I mean, it's a wired world, so we don't need to be in person anymore between Skype and WebExes and <laughs> Go-to meetings and all that type of stuff. It's very easy to communicate with people and work with them.
1: Very good. So let's start kind of at a broad level here. So the tax system is very, very complicated. They keep adding to it all the time. Are there a lot of opportunities to save on taxes that most people don't know because the system is just so complex? Yeah,
2: it's actually not as complex as you might think, but it is very complex in terms that there's 70,000 pages. So... I mean who's going to read those? It's just not a it's not a it's not a breezy read. It's, it's not a light summer days read. So, you know, how do you deal with it? Well, and 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 frankly, if you're a specific type of business, so if you're a I don't know, if you're a farmer, then you probably know the tax laws that are specific to farmers. But in general, most people don't know that the tax code was designed for them. This is one of the biggest and most frustrating parts of what we do is the biggest frustration is a lot of people think that cpas are tax planners they're not trained to be tax planners there's nothing in their designation the a and cpa is accounting accountants are historians they're not proactive futurists so a lot of people will go towards an entire industry to solve a problem that the entire industry is not designed to solve at all so that's a big problem Uh, but what we've done is we've tried to solve for that by teaching people enough of the tax code. But one of the challenges we run into is a lot of people think, well, gosh, if I use some of these strategies, am I going to increase my audit risk? And the answer is actually no. The tax code is designed, and this is something that people have a hard time grasping. The tax code is designed to be used. The, there's really only a few lines in the tax code that tax. You know, you make X amount of dollars. This is the percentage that you're taxed based on that X amount of dollars. Send it in. That's the tax code. The rest of the tax code is what you can do to avoid the tax. Standard deductions, mortgage interest. What we do is we start to look at the tax code even deeper than the mortgage interest, which everyone's aware of, and we start looking for things that you can do specifically. Write off your home office. Do we lease or do we buy a car? Uh, if we lease a car, do, can we write off uh, gas? Uh, if we travel on vacation, can I somehow get some of that vacation written off for business? This is the, the finer tuning of the tax code that we take advantage of. And then there's some really big things, I mean, kind of out-of-the-park home runs that are in the tax code. There's one strategy that you can stash a million dollars a year tax-free. It's got to be set up right. It's very complicated. It's expensive. But if you're in a 50% tax bracket and you put you know, a million dollars away, you're going to save a half a million dollars a year in taxes. So as long as the cost to do that is substantially lower than that, then most people would prefer the fees uh, to avoid taxes than the taxes themselves.
1: Before uh, we go on, let's just tell yeah. – we, we don't want to put that out there without telling people what we're talking about. What What is that strategy that allows you to put aside a million dollars? So it's
2: called it's called a captive. Um, we, we call them chicks, closely held insurance companies the maximum is 1.2 million dollars in in money. Now, if you were to call a company that specializes in these, they'll tell you that it's an insurance strategy because it is. It's it's a way of insuring against risk that and the and Congress really wants you to use this. In fact, the cap on it was 1.2 million. They raised it to 2.2 million starting in January of 2017, and Obama signed it into law. So we've got a Republican uh, House and Congress, and we've got a Democrat president that both wants you to have this. So this is one of those things that's been in the tax code for decades. Uh, the IRS doesn't really like it. In fact, they sued uh, the United Parcel Service in early 2000 in um, UPS one. So <laughs> the tax code's pretty, pretty solid. It's standing on really solid ground. So, But you have to have an insurable interest. So somebody that's making a million dollars as a W-2 employee would not be able to employ this strategy. Even a small business owner that has no risk outside of what they're already insuring for, which is like long-term care and health insurance and that type of stuff, they wouldn't be able to use it. But a vast majority of companies have some sort of risk that they can insure for, And if they can't insure for it, we can insure for it. And as you know, most insurance premiums to a company is a business expense and therefore a tax deduction to the business. So when you add up all these tax codes together and you swirl them together and you create painting, that painting allows you to save hundreds of thousands of dollar years in taxes. And the tax code is... It's got a lot of these in it. We like this one because it's it's kind of sexy. So it looks, it sounds really good on on the air, and it sounds really good on paper. Uh, but it's a lot of work to to implement. It's not it's
1: for everybody, but is, in the right circumstances, it's not for everybody. Yeah, it could work. Yes. Well,
2: first of all, if you can't stash a million dollars a year, it's obviously not for you. We actually tell people if they cannot put away two hundred fifty thousand dollars a year per year for at least five years, it's not a good strategy. But there's a lot of strategies in the code for. Mere mortals like me, where you know you can rent your house to yourself fourteen days a year. It's in the tax code. It's been in the tax code for decades. No one seems to be using it, but it's there. You should use it.
1: Do you think that the whole tax code will ever be super simplified again? I mean, some people talk about putting it on a postcard and making it very simple and lowering the rates and getting rid of the deductions and credits. There seems to be some agreement on Capitol Hill that that would be a good direction to go. Do you think that could ever happen? No. <laughs> And here's the reason.
2: There's a first of all, it's one of those. Be careful what you wish for, because they can change the tax code to one postcard. And it's basically line one: how much did you make? Line two: send it in. So (laughs) that would that would not be a good solution. So that would be a be careful what you wish for. The reason I don't believe it's going to ever get simpler. It may get on the margins a little bit simpler. So they may drop it from seventy thousand pages down to sixty. But typically, when they pass new tax laws, it's kind of like Frankenstein's monster. They just graft it on what's already there. And even Obamacare's recent, uh, you know, the, the Obamacare taxes and all the stuff that went along with the, the Affordable Health Care Act, it's part of the tax code, and it would just graft it on. Many of the really cool things that we recommend to our clients to reduce their health care costs, like Pay for their glasses and their kids' braces out of their businesses. That wasn't impacted by Obamacare. So it was grafted on, it was added, but none of the stuff that was there before got changed that much. So here's the deal Republicans like to pull levers to control their voting block, Democrats pull levers to control their voting block. One thing the Democrats and Republicans agree on is the pulling of the levers so you've basically got all the seat of power on both sides agreeing that they need to be able to pull levers so to go mm-hmm. to a flat tax or to try to reduce taxes it's just not going to happen in a way that's material so what i tell people is is look you know it should the tax code be simple sure is the fat flat tax the way to go maybe but it doesn't matter. It's not the world we live in. So we have to work within the world that we live in. The world we live in is a complicated tax code. And if you don't like it, you can move to a different country. The problem is is their tax codes are just as complicated, if not yes. more complicated. So there's nowhere to go. So, Very you know. good. All
1: right, well, now that we know that it, it's not going to get any simpler, we're going to deal with it in our next segment on how to make the most of this complicated code we have. Uh, we're going to take a break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is John Pollack. He's the CEO at Financial Gravity Holdings. You can find out more about him at his website, financialgravity.com. We'll be back after this. Welcome back to the Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is John Pollack. He's the CEO at Financial Gravity Holdings. His website, financialgravity.com, a firm that can help you lower your taxes in various ways. Welcome back to the show, John. Thanks for having me. So people know that there's a lot of ways to cut taxes. We're going to go into that in some detail if you have a business. But what are some things that people who do not own a business do in order to cut their taxes in various ways beyond having a mortgage deduction, and kind of the obvious things. What are some things non-business owners can do to help with their taxes?
2: Well, actually, let me kind of frame this up a little bit, and this will actually help in the discussion with the business owners as well. What I explain to people is there's three areas that you're going to pay taxes on. You're going to pay ta- taxes on what you earn, you're going to pay taxes on what you grow, and you're going to pay taxes on what you distribute. Now, there's basically three different things. There's the, there's the Think of it like you know, crops, there's the seed, there's the growth, and then there's the harvest. The tax code basically allows us to choose which one of those particular segments, whether it be the seed or the harvest, that we get, a tax, get taxed on. So t- typically what most people do is they'll say, you know what, I don't want to pay taxes on the seed or the growth. I'll pay taxes on the harvest. That's an IRA, a 401k, a SEP, a simple, a 403b. All the retirement plans, 457, all the retirement plans that are out there are basically choosing to pay taxes on the harvest. So you're saying, gosh, while I'm earning it now, I don't want to pay taxes. And because I'm not paying taxes, I'm now able to save more. So i am kind of uh, got to lean against my, my future earnings because the government is now partnered with me. I, I earn a dollar, and instead of paying 25% taxes on it, I keep the whole dollar, and I keep it at work. So it grows within this portfolio, and then hopefully someday it'll be $10, but then I got to pay the tax on that at that time, which hopefully we can work around. So that's the typical retirement planning tax strategy. The biggest challenge with that is it makes, number one, the assumption that you're going to be in a lower tax bracket at retirement, which is flawed for two reasons. Number one, if you're planning to be less successful when you retire, that's bad planning. And number two, you're assuming that the tax... Brackets will stay the same as they are now. And historically, where we're at is they're actually low. So, back in the Kennedy time, uh, when Kennedy was a president, we're looking at 80% taxes plus. Um, in fact, Ronald Reagan became a Republican because he was taxed, at the time, taxes were 100% over. $200,000 in income. In fact, he would have actually owed money on previous earnings because he lived in California. So wow. that's why he only made two movies a year. Most people don't know this. He made two movies a year because he got paid hundred grand per movie. If he made a third movie, he would get zero revenue from it. And the previous two movies would have been taxed wow. at the state level. So he <laughs> that's would have actually lost money. So he's work. like, okay, I'll, yeah. So it's actually pretty cool. You know, he made two movies and he just took the rest of the year off. So you got, if, you, if you hammered them out in March, you had nine months off. <laughs> so that's where we used to be. So could we go there again? I don't know. I don't know if politically that's could happen. But let's just say it could. Um, even with that, do you think taxes are going to be higher later or lower? Just knowing what we know now, chances are they're going to be higher. So what I've been telling people is to kind of flip it. What are what are the things that we can do to pay taxes now? So I'll pay taxes on the seed but not pay taxes on the harvest. So there's a couple of things and the biggest for lower income W2 workers is the Roth IRA. Take advantage of this thing, especially the millennials out there. If you're under 40, the longer you have, the more powerful the Roth will become. It's it's you know, go research compounding interest. You've got a money show, so I'm sure you've talked about the power of compounding interest.
1: There the are compound interest in, income insurance. limitations for Roth, and you can only right. put in 5500 a year and $65 over uh, age 50. So there are limitations on the Roth. It's good for what it, what it is, but it's not going to be a huge amount.
2: It's not going to be a huge amount, but you can kind of, and this is where you can kind of cheat the system. I don't know if cheat's a good word because it's not really cheating because it's part of the law, but you could actually stash a ton of money into 401k, max out your 401k, and then convert it every year. So that's a, that's kind of a backhanded way... To get to a Roth because there's there's no limit on conversions. So, but you're gonna have to pay the you're gonna have to pay the piper. So if you if you're in the twenty-five percent tax bracket, you stash twenty thousand this year, and then you convert it, you're gonna have to come up with that five thousand dollars somewhere. You can right? convert so it every just, year, you you're
1: saying? Because normally while you're still working at a firm, you can't take money out of a 401k. You can't roll it out while you're still at a firm. Only after you leave correct. the firm can you convert it, is that correct? Correct,
2: correct. But if you decide because you want to do the Roth, that you do not want to contribute to the firm 401k and you would prefer to contribute to your own IRA, which I would not recommend if you get a match. If you get a match you got you got to take the free money. that's yeah. not too. But if you want if you really want to build a Roth, let's say you're making 300 grand a year and you're not eligible for the Roth. Well, this is one way to kind of backdoor into a Roth. It's a It's a game that some people don't want to play because they have to pay the taxes when they do it. Uh, the best way to do it is pay taxes with outside money, and then it becomes even more powerful. But you can get to it. The, the other way, which is outside of a Roth, and I'm going to stun a lot of people, and you know a lot of people are going to cringe and think I'm a charlatan just by saying this word out loud. But insurance, life insurance, is very, very powerful in the tax strategies. I even joke with people that. It almost looks like the insurance executives and politicians are playing a lot of golf together because the tax strategies built around the insurance industry are
1: staggeringly good. So and you're putting neglect- in after-tax money, but once it's in an insurance policy, it's growing tax-free is what you're saying.
2: Right, and it can come out tax-free. So there are ways to get it out tax-free. And when you die, it's tax-free. When you die and you have a million dollars in an IRA, it's taxed to whoever inherits it. Yeah. So there's really no way to avoid it. But within life insurance, if I stash a million dollars over time into a life insurance policy and it's a $5 million policy and I die, my heirs get $5 million, I can live on the million while I'm alive tax-free.
1: But by borrowing it out. That are
2: in loan. Yep, right? by borrowing it out. That's exactly right. 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 Uh, and you want something that's called a wash loan provision. Um, but when you start to run the numbers, and if, you make a, if you're a wealthy W-2 income earner, and you're doing very well, there's uh, premium financing where you can leverage up. So there's a lot of great strategies around life insurance. The biggest problem we run into life insurance, and hopefully you deal with this on the show, is most life insurance agents don't know 90% of what makes life insurance good. They just sell it because they pay well. And so it's very important that you get someone that really knows the products, can shop around, and really get you the right thing.
1: All life insurance has the same tax privileges of tax-free growth, loans against it, and a tax-free death benefit. Which, if people are doing this as a retirement savings vehicle, which are the best kinds of insurance? Whole life, variable life, index universal life. What are your favorites? Since you have a background in insurance,
2: so I, I'm not a fan of variable because it just it doesn't get us where we need to be, and the cost of the typically variable life policies have very expensive mutual funds inside of them. They don't even have really good mutual funds and you're kind of trapped into whatever they have the company has made available to you. So I'm not a fan of variable life. If you want to manage a portfolio inside of a life insurance, there's a a thing called private placement life insurance, which basically allows the life insurance to be kind of a custodian and you can build virtually any portfolio market-based portfolio inside of your own life insurance policy. Very, very cool stuff. Uh, it also adds private placement life has some implications for charities as well as it's, it's very powerful for people that are overseas. We could do a whole show on private placement life. It's a very, very sophisticated product. But typically we stick with uh, index universal life. The way I t- explain it to people is you want life insurance. You want insurance for what insurance is for. You want the market for what the market's for. You really don't want to mix them. It's not like a Reese's peanut butter cup where chocolate and peanut butter taste much better together. Mm. <laughs> but in life insurance, when you mix securities and insurance, it typically does not work out well unless you can get the insurance cost as low as possible, so treat it like a commodity, and then get the, the money management part as low as possible.
1: If you you're saying that's what process, Index Universal Life allows you to do?
2: Well, Index it doesn't necessarily allow you to do that, but it gets a better rate of return than a typical, at least it's projected to, it's designed to get a better rate of return than a flat-out fixed-type policy like a whole life. and You really don't want to buy a whole life because a whole life is like buying a CD for the rest of your life under current interest rates. Yeah. Not a good move. Now, there are whole life policies. A lot of people will talk the, on the bank-on-yourself concept and they'll say, oh, buy a whole life policy. And you buy a mutual company, and then you'll get the dividends, maybe. So we like universal because you can buy a universal life from a, a uh a mutual company uh, and get the same kind of benefits, but you also get some market returns. I'm talking about index universal. Yeah, index universals or equity equity, index universal. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So universal, yeah. yeah. So we like it because it's a fixed product. Uh, If you want to take market risk and get market returns and go the private placement route, it's going to be the cheapest, but you're going to have to put a lot of money away. Uh, It goes back to the the captive example. But I love life insurance. The challenge is is you don't want to be sold it. You want it to be part of a plan. And that's what most people get wrong is they buy products to solve these one problem and they don't look at the big picture. And that's really if you if you look at all the tax code before you make decisions. I mean, we're talking now specifically, if you're a W-2 employee, this is a way to basically build a retirement plan tax-free. So those are the two uh, main you,
1: areas, as you're saying. A Roth max yeah. out the Roth IRA. Do an index universal life as your money. Your, as you say, you're putting in after-tax dollars. You you taxed on the seed, but all the future growth is tax-free, and you can take it out tax-free. Is that correct? You are.
2: Yep. That's that's and those are really the two big ones for for the 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 rank-and-file W two people. That yeah. I mean, that's a good portion of our society. So that's the best way for you to to manage your
1: future. Indeed, but you got to be
2: careful, especially on the life insurances. That could be, (laughs) could be scary.
1: Do you think you you talked about the uh, uh, insurance executives on the golf course with the uh, congressional people? (laughs) Do you think that that tax free growth inside insurance would ever be threatened? I don't.
2: So I think the Roth is more threatenable. So
1: think of it. Think of it. Let's think of it practically.
2: Let's say that. Congress decides whether it be an R or a D Congress, it doesn't matter, let's say Congress is decides that only rich people have the Roths. The Roth, what is a Roth? The Roth is part of the tax code. So with a stroke of a pen, they can change the tax code. And what Roth lobby is going to rise up and solve it? Rich people's Roth lobbies? I mean, it's just it doesn't exist. Now, if life insurance, if they start to go after life insurance, there's a lobby that will prevent that from happening. It's the insurance lobby. And the insurance lobby is richer and more powerful than the banking lobby. And we know what they did for the banks. Yeah. So, so I am so pretty to comfortable. Yeah, I don't, I'm not I'm – not, I'm not, the insurance industry has been around – I mean the, the precedence of uh, tax-free growth and death benefits that are tax-free, it, we're talking centuries. This is – this stuff that predates the country. Insurance yes. – this is just how insurance has always been, and I just don't – I don't see. The insurance industry is the wealthiest industry in the world, bar none. The banks aren't even a, a close second. Um, okay. So we're so you're we're in a, in a, a good. I'm in very comfortable uh, saying that they're not going to mess with the rules. Now they have messed with the rules in the past, and we can talk about that of where they've changed them and how we can prepare for that. But um, they were actually they were actually reasonable requests. Very uh, good. The government made made some changes at took some stuff away, but it was it was actually smart. Very good.
1: Okay, we're going to take another break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is John Pollock. He's the CEO of Financial Gravity Holdings. Website you can find out more about all of his tax-saving strategies is financialgravity.com. We'll be back after this.
3: Stocks, bonds, investment opportunities, financial news, and talk. We can help. Call us now toll free, 866 472 5790. 866 472 5790. Voice America Business Network. Capital Thinking takes you inside the worlds of policy, politics, law, and business. What happens in government, the legal arena, and the business world impacts your business every day, and we're going to take you on a behind-the-scenes tour of it all. Each week, we'll bring you unfiltered conversation with a variety of influential policymakers and leaders. Squire Patton Boggs will be your guide as Capital Thinking tours the halls of power. Join us for Capital Thinking on the Voice America Business Channel each Thursday at noon Eastern and 9 a.m. Pacific Time.
0: It's just a click away at VAPressPass.com. That's VAPressPass.com. VA Press Pass by Voice America. All access, all the time.
3: From the boardroom to you. Voice America Business Network.
0: You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan.
1: Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour, John Pollack, CEO of Financial Gravity Holdings. His website, financialgravity.com. He's got books. He's got all kinds of things to help you with your taxes. So welcome back to the show, John. Thanks for having me. So what is it that wealthy, family-owned businesses know about taxes that the average small business owner tends not to know about?
2: That the tax code is it's a guidebook. <laughs> it's, an, it's an instruction manual on how to run your business. Um, a lot of people are afraid of the tax code and feel like, well, if I do this and reduce my taxes, that's going to increase my risk for audit. And the exact opposite is true. Uh, think of the IRS as a collection agency. And if I'm a collection agency and you are making a million and I am making a hundred thousand, the collection agency is going to look at the million dollar person as a bigger target than the person making a hundred thousand. Now what's interesting about the tax code is I can take my million down to a hundred thousand by using the tax code, just systematically knocking off my income by creating expenses. Uh, legally, morally, and ethically, you can't just say, well, I'm not going to pay taxes. You have to pay taxes, but you can play the game. And I actually say this a lot to people. It's a game. It may be a lousy game. It may be unfair. Maybe we should have a flat tax. But as I joke... You know, cheesecake shouldn't make me fat and my teenage daughter should listen to me. Neither of those things are going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> so, Just I've deal con- with it, right? <laughs> yeah, just deal with it. So we've got this convoluted tax code. I I get it. It sucks. Well, do we want to sit around and complain about it or do we want to actually look at it and say, it says to do what? If all I do is what, I can do what? So, and that's the type of things that we're trying to get people to understand. Let me give you a simple example Okay. that everybody on the show can relate to. So first of all, there's a lot of confusion around the LLC. A lot of people, I'll ask them if I'm speaking, I'll have people raise their hand. Who here has an LLC? And most of the room will go up. Who here files as an LLC? And most of the room will raise their hand. You can't file as an LLC. An LLC is a legal entity. There's only four ways to file. A sole proprietor, a partnership, a C corp, an S corp, and actually there's a fifth way, which is called a disregarded entity. So, An LLC can be one of those five things. So when you become an LLC, if you do not elect to be an S or C or a partnership or whatnot, it automatically defaults to a sole proprietor. The sole proprietor is five times more likely to be audited than an S corp. So let's say I'm making $100,000 a year from my sole proprietor, and I'm paying myself a a salary of $8,000 a month to get to that six figures. Now, if I reduce my salary to $50,000 a year and then pay the rest of it as a distribution, I've just saved myself a bunch of money in taxes, doing that one strategy. And all I need to do is switch from a sole proprietor to an S-corp, and the capital, the, the self-employment tax goes away on a portion of my money if I'm paying self-employment tax. And that saves me a ton of money, and that actually reduces my, ri- my audit risk by five times.
1: So, so the reason less likely. The, the reason that they want to audit sole proprietorships more than S corps is they think there's a they're being abusive. That things that are being written off personally are not really businesses. Where if you have an S corp, it more looks like a real business. Is that the reason why there's a difference in audit for those?
2: I have a theory. I'm not, I'm not sure if it's accurate. I think yours is probably closer to the truth. But I ha- I kind of believe that if you're making because the the risk is over hundred thousand dollars in gross revenue, which a gr- hundred thousand in gross revenue is not a lot in the business world. It may be if you're a very, very small business making twenty thirty thousand dollars 30000 a year designing logos or something, which we need in our society, but if you're making over $100,000 in gross, you need to move to an S. My theory is, is that the government knows that there's a huge advantage to going from a sole prop to an S, and if you haven't done that one thing, you're probably making a mistake on a bunch of other things, so they target you. I'm not sure if that's a true statement, but it is, it is factually true.
1: Having an you S a, sh- shows a yeah, level of seriousness, right?
2: Yes. Yeah, it's, 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 it, maybe it's a seriousness or it's just, I don't know, if you're not paying attention and you haven't moved from a sole proprietor to an S and you're doing over $100,000, you're either getting hammered on taxes. I'll give you an example of where I know a guy will never get audited and he's a sole proprietor. He's a sole proprietor. He's paying... A self-employment tax on a full million dollars in income, which he doesn't have to pay. So that's $150,000 a year in taxes he does not have to pay. And he is a sole proprietor. So that's someone the IRS is not going to audit because they're not going to teach him how to pay less. So they're going to like, this guy's paying way more than he should be paying. Let's just keep letting him do it. <laughs> but there's a, there's a hole from about 100000 to a, a few hundred thousand dollars where It just doesn't make sense to be a sole proprietor anymore. The LLC is a legal entity. How you file can control things. And we also tell our clients that once they get big enough, you might want to split your company into an S and a C. C corporations have strategies that we can use that S corporations do not. Uh, Like the medical expense reimbursement plan cannot be used in an S, but it can be used in a C. If we have both, we can use all the strategies in both. But you need to be big enough to justify the the accounting expense on that. But if you are, it's well worth it. Also, there is some thought process that S is – if a Republican gets elected, then the S corps are going to do better because Republicans tend – and this isn't 100% true, but they tend towards small business owners, whereas Democrats tend towards large businesses like C corps. But my attitude is, is why not have one of each and then whoever gets elected, we can – control the flow of money to the C or the S, depending on the current tax code.
1: Yeah. Okay. What, what are some of the red flags as far as audit that are red flags? And what are some of the ones that people might think are red flags that in fact are not red flags for audits?
2: So the the stuff that is red flag, there's really not a whole lot that are red flags other than uh, over hundred thousand dollars in sole proprietor—that's the biggest one because of the—it's—it's it's a five hundred percent likelihood of being audited. Um, the rest is just fraud. So if you don't break the law, you're not going to have a red flag. Let me—before I tell you the biggest one that everyone says is a red flag, which isn't—before I tell you that, let me kind of give you an illustration on how to—we explain this to people. Okay. Think of the traffic laws. So if I am at a red light and you're at a red light, the statistical likelihood of us getting in an accident if we never go through the red light is zero. We're not going to get in an accident because we're sitting at the red light. In fact, it would be the safest if there was never a green light because no one would ever get me in an accident. It's not a productive part of society, so we need the green lights to allow for the free flow of traffic in an orderly manner. That's what the tax code is ironically the tax code is a handful of pages of red lights and 70,000 pages of green lights so the number one thing that every if a cpa tells you this fire them i mean literally fire them on the spot because it hasn't been true for a couple of decades decades if you're told that a home office deduction is a red flag you need to fire your accountant the home office (laughs) deduction hasn't been a red flag since the internet i mean people are moving living out of Doing a lot of stuff out of the homes.
1: Podcasts but it has to be legitimate. It has to be a legitimate home office, It has right? to
2: be legitimate. You don't just make something up. Um, you're not going to be able to support it, by the way. If you if you make something up, I mean, you're going to have to have receipts. So you're going to have to come up with a, a profit motive. Yeah. Um, but there are companies that go – I mean, Amazon went a decade without making it a profit. And nobody disallowed their tax strategies because they're, they're not a real business. But the, the home office, there's several ways to write off a home office. There's a 14-day rental rule, um, which is also known as the Augusta rule, where you can rent your house to yourself 14 days a, a year. Uh, and you can basically take it as a business expense and receive it as income and not pay taxes on it. You can, use your, you can do depreciation, which I don't usually recommend. You could also do a number of rooms or square footage. It's called business use percentage. So, what I've just given you is four different ways to write off the home office. If the home office was a red flag, why would there be four different ways of doing it? Not like one strange way. There's four completely legitimate ways. In fact, the Internal Revenue Code allows for the differences between a New York house and a Texas house. In Texas, our houses tend to be bigger. So, we tell our clients to use the rule the room business use percentage because a room's a three-bedroom, two-bed house that is 4,000 square feet in Texas may be 1,000 square feet in New York. But in New York, they would rather take the square footage as a business use percentage. In Texas, we would rather take the rooms. Yes. So the Internal Revenue Code allows for these different types of strategies, and there's four of them, um, we can even throw in cost segregation if we want to think of another way to write off real estate. But the the reality is is that it hasn't been a red flag since the Internet, and, it, and more and more people have started running their businesses. Most podcasts are done out of people home, people's homes. A lot of businesses are running out of people's homes. There's really not a huge need anymore for uh, the office space, unless you have yeah. a business that needs to collect people in one place.
1: Now, in order to save on taxes, one of the things you have to do well is keep records, right, as far as – like travel and entertainment, and who you had the meals for—is that an issue for a lot of people? They just don't want to keep the records through legitimize a tax deductions.
2: Yeah, so that's that's actually a very good question. No one's ever asked that before. <laughs> that's, that's that is the, probably the biggest single problem. When I meet with an entrepreneur, most entrepreneurs like myself are running and gunning. They're not thinking about details. They're not thinking about keeping a receipt for that one thing. Um, as our business has grown and we've moved to a C-Corp, I've been required to keep receipts and I never did before. So that becomes a barrier. So one of the things we'll ask our small business owners is we'll explain to them the strategy, what work is required to make the strategy work, what percentage of that work we'll help them do if they want us to, what percentage they're going to have to do. And sometimes a business owner will look at us and say, gosh, for a few thousand dollars, I don't want the hassle. And that ends up being a business decision. At some point... Time is worth more than money, so I'd rather not spend the time to do the thing that will save me the money. But in most cases, it's just a little bit of paperwork, and there's really great apps now. Um, What what would be an app that would
1: help you keep track of your expenses in an easy way? What what would be a good app you'd recommend?
2: Well, I use one called Expense Tracker. It it actually syncs to Dropbox. It it tracks – I can take a picture of a receipt, and then once the receipt pops up on the screen, then I can put in – you know, I was going, I was at lunch with Jordan, we talked about a podcast, um, and here's a receipt. And, and mm-hmm. so the receipt's already saved, and then it syncs to to the the internet through a Dropbox or a box or whatever uh, service yeah. you're using. Another great app that I ran across, I don't, you know what, I don't remember the name, but you can actually search um, uh, mileage tracker apps. What's great about the new, you know, what's great about the phone <laughs> that we all have in our hands these days is that there's these these apps that make life easier. I used to. I'm going to age myself a little bit, but I used to keep a book in my glove box, um, and I I will confess that about once a month I would go through and try to figure out <laughs> the mileages I used on every day. I just didn't have the detail uh, hook to make sure that I did the mileage. Or, you know, pick out the book, wrote down I'm leaving now, um, but apps do that now. They actually they actually track you as soon as you leave your house. So, like, if I get in the car and the app's running in the background, I drive to work. As soon as I stop, the app will pop up a thing and say, is this work or is this personal? If it's work, you swipe one way. If it's personal, you swipe another way. And if you no. swipe the way is for work, it'll pop up and say, what was the work?
1: Very, cool. very good. Very, very good. Very, very cool stuff. Terrific. Very good. All right, we're going to take another break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is John Pollock. He's the CEO at Financial Gravity Holdings, based in Texas, but it's a national firm. You can find out more about his services and how he helps people save taxes at financialgravity.com. We'll be back after this.
3: From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor can be heard Tuesdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel.
0: What if every day was a good day for business because every decision you made was the best choice? What if you could receive regular input from credible sources and could acquire all the precise information you need exactly when you need it so you can make the right decision every single time? Because there's more challenges you to make better decisions. Join Laura Ellis every Monday at 9 a.m. Eastern, 6 a.m. Pacific, and 2 p.m. GMT on the Voice America Business Channel and learn how to think differently for better decisions, better business.
3: Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN.
0: You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan.
1: Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour, John Pollack, is CEO at Financial Gravity Holdings. His website, financialgravity.com. Welcome back to the show, John. Thanks for having me. So you did a book called The 10 Most Expensive Tax Mistakes That Cost Investors Thousands. We don't have time to get into all of them, but let's, one area you have is why people are overpaying tax on investing. Things like cash, bonds, stocks, mutual funds, capital gains. Just give us an idea of why people are overpaying their tax on investments. All right. So this is going to be, this might be controversial.
2: <laughs> but there's something in mutual funds that is unique to mutual funds, and it's not in any of the marketing brochures, and it's called tax friction or tax overhang. It's very well known in the industry, but really nobody talks about it because it's just one of those things, well, it's just their mutual funds. That's the way they are, and which I would disagree with, but tax friction is basically you paying capital gains tax on a fund that's gone down. So I'll give you an example from my own life. We had a client that came in a couple years in a row. He had the Fidelity Magellan Fund. The Fidelity Magellan Fund lost ten percent, but yet he had one hundred fifty thousand dollars in capital gains, and therefore owned, owed fifteen percent on those gains, which he didn't get because the fund itself. I mean, he had. This million is because the they
1: made a distribution of capital gains distribution on sales from earlier things that they'd sold at a profit. Is that right?
2: Yeah, but it's it's. it's Kind of more complicated than that, more complicated and simpler. So let me, give you, let me give you a simple example. Let's say I'm a money manager and I bought Apple at 50 bucks a share a decade ago. And you today bought into my mutual fund. And let's say Apple's trading at 100 bucks a share. So when you bought into the mutual fund, did you buy Apple at 100 bucks a share or did you buy it at 50 bucks a share? Well, you personally are, are not going to experience Apple – at fifty bucks a share, you're gonna spare it as a hundred because that's when you came in. But right. let's say Apple drops twenty percent, it's now eighty bucks a share, and a bunch of people leave the mutual fund. And as they leave the mutual fund, me, the manager says, you know what, I better liquidate some of the stock. Hey, I bought it at fifty, it's now at eighty, that's a pretty good return. I'm gonna sell Apple. Well, me, the investor who bought in when it was at a hundred dollars a share, ostensibly actually lost money because I bought it at a hundred, it's now at eighty. But I'm going to owe capital gains on the difference between the cost basis, which is not my cost basis, it's the fund's cost basis, and the the sale price. So I now owe capital gains on something I technically lost money. And it gets worse. So I lost money on it, but I also lost the tax credit. Because normally I'd have $20,000 that I could write off of future earnings. But I don't get to write that off now. So that $20,000 in a 25% tax bracket, let's just use 20 for for um, that's about halfway in between on capital gains tax you know that that $20,000 in losses you know cost me 4,000 in taxes so not only did i have to pay capital gains on losses but i didn't get the capital reduction so there's one simple way to solve this it's just don't invest in mutual funds and by the way whether you're in an ira or a full 401k this tax friction and tax overhang still exists So the corporate tax rates that Fidelity and Vanguard have to pay are still have to be paid whether you're in an IRA or not or a 401k. So there's actually a place on Morningstar where you can there's a tax tab and you can see the underlying taxes that a fund pays. So let's say you have an S and P 500 fund, which doesn't hopefully doesn't have a lot of trading because it only owns 500 of the same stocks, and the only time it would trade is to rebalance. So you shouldn't have a lot of taxes. The problem is is that people that own S and P 500 funds buy and sell them constantly. So you constantly have a flow of people money going into the funds. and constantly have a, a flow of money coming out of the fund. And you, as a person that's you know, being disciplined and buying and just letting things happen, is paying a price for all the movement of other so people. There's a
1: lot of short-term capital gains and losses as people have to buy new funds, buy new stocks, sell funds to meet redemptions, and all that is friction that's hurting you as the in- in- investor in the fund is what you're saying.
2: Yeah, and, and on top of that, most mutual funds, even S&P 500 fund, we tell people all the time, you cannot get S&P 500 returns. There's nowhere you can buy it. You can't buy it in an ETF because there's a fee to get into the S&P 500. And all the returns you see online and on the news is that it's gross of anything. So you you never are going to do as well as the S&P 500, um, especially in a mutual fund that has a lot of money. No, that all makes sense.
1: That's on mutual yeah. funds. And then how about on individual stocks and bonds? Uh, what are the, uh, why do people overpay tax on those?
2: It's just it's just dumb trading. So what we recommend people go into is a sep- what's called separately managed accounts, where they're managed by professional money managers, but they own the individual share. So when I buy in, I'm not buying where the money manager bought in. I'm buying in where I buy in. So none of the other behaviors of any of the other investors affects my portfolio. The only mm-hmm. thing that affects my portfolio is my own dysfunction, which could be pretty bad. But you know, yeah. if I'm buying and selling frequently, I'm going to have a lot of uh, taxes. So,
1: and, and why are people discipline. overpaying taxes on capital gains? You have a whole section on, on capital gains tax. Is it because they're not waiting for the one-year time period? Or why are they paying too much in capital gains taxes?
2: Yeah, I mean, that's, that's really what it comes down to. It's just the impatience. A lot of people make decisions based on emotions. I mean, most recently, the whole Brexit thing uh the 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 election happened the vote happened the day it that happened uh britain's stock dropped the world's stocks dropped a lot of clients got freaked out and said oh you know brexit it's the end of the world as we know it and then they sold their stocks and a week later the market had completely recovered and hit all-time highs so if they would have made the decision not based on taxes let's say they had just bought the portfolio now they have now they have they've created capital gains and capital losses within a portfolio, and then the market's recovered, and then they get back in you know so you're it's, saying it's,
1: a lot of emotional decisions have very bad tax consequences is what you're saying yes, very
2: And that that happens in life as well as in portfolios
1: <laughs> yeah now you you talk about various tax engineered products I assume you think that's a bad thing that something's designed to avoid taxes is that right? It depends.
2: Uh, Generally, yes, uh, because if you're if you're just trying to avoid taxes, sometimes the products aren't good. And this is this goes back to our original segment on the life insurance is, yeah, there's a lot of great uh, tax benefits. But sometimes (laughs) people sell a bad product uh, that has good benefits. The illustration I use on that is I can hammer a nail with the back of a screwdriver, but that's not what it was designed for. So let's let's use the proper tool.
1: Mm -hmm. So do you think there are going to be more kind of tax shelters? There used to be when tax rates were much higher all kinds of exotic ways to avoid taxes. There seems to be less of that now because the tax rate aren't as high. Is that correct?
2: I would disagree. I think there's plenty of exotic ways to save taxes. It's just a matter of applying them applying them. Um, That's one of the reasons the firm Financial Gravity was founded as it is in its current state is that I was trying to solve this problem for the small business owner uh, if i have 30 million dollars in assets i i would have my money with a thing called a family office you may have heard of this but many people listening yes. have may, may not have heard of this is if you're uber wealthy 30 million typically is 20 to 30 million dollars i have someone that manages everything they're never going to sell me a life insurance policy i don't need they're managing my thirty million dollars. If my daughter needs money, they don't call me. They call the family office, and the family office is going to distribute money based on some rules that I've set. So, all the money is being handled, all the details of the taxes, the insurance, the securities, the the law, all being handled handled by the family office. Unfortunately, a small business owner doesn't have access to that kind of, you know, uh, safety, uh, or uh, non-sales approach because the family office is never gonna sell a product that their, their client doesn't need because they don't want to jeopardize the relationship. Whereas your P and C agent may sell you a whole life policy you don't need. You think that they are they have a vested interest to keep you for a while, but they're gonna make more money from the life insurance than they're gonna make from your P and C policy for the next ten years. Yes. So they're not working in your best interest. So yes, indeed. how do we solve for this? Well what we've tried to do is create what we call a fractional family office where that if you do come to us for a specific thing, we're going to still make sure that specific thing is connected to everything you're doing, so we're not going to oversell you life insurance. If you already got $10 million of life insurance, you probably don't need more. We'll Very look good. at it to see if it's efficient, but we're not going to sell you more.
1: Terrific. Well, thanks so much. We've learned a lot. Uh, my guest this hour has been John Pollock. He's the CEO at Financial Gravity Holdings. Uh, he's got a book out called 10 Most Expensive Tax Mistakes that cost investors thousands. He's got another book called Tax Breaks of the Rich and Famous. You can find out more about him at his website, financialgravity.com. Thanks so much for being a guest on The Money Answer Show, John. Thanks for having me. And we'll be back with another edition of The Money Answer Show next week. Goodbye for now.